Um, I don't know if I said this at the, when I came up, I know I said I was going to take a more casual approach. I was going to sit on, you gave me permission to sit on the edge of the stage. Uh, but we're also going to get out kind of early. Um, and so we can drink that coffee that we prayed over, maybe <laughs> eat some donuts and then um, and, and just enjoy being together. We're going to look today at the book of Matthew at another account of the birth of Jesus. And actually, this this account isn't so much about the birth of Jesus as much as it is about what happened after the birth of Jesus. So I know our nativity sets have the shepherds and the magi and the uh, little drummer boy and all the other Christmas characters at the nativity at the same time, but that's not really how it went down, right? So uh, Sarah and... Zechariah, you know, all these characters weren't all there at the same time. They happened across uh, a period of time, and they're there just because we like to rem- we like to remember them, and we feel like Jesus should have lots of company. If he's going to be in a barn, he should have lots of company, and so we put all the characters there and we squeeze them in. Um, but it didn't happen that way. The the magi, the wise men, the three kings, however you want to think of them. Uh, came probably two years after Jesus was born. Their journey was a long one. And this star appeared. I'm going to talk about the appearing of this star in a minute. But the star appeared and they made their way towards this, this king that was, going to, that was born. And they came to worship him and to give him gifts. Uh, but they weren't there at the same time as the shepherds. The shepherds came when Jesus was born. Said, the king is born. It's, it's happening now. Like they're at the hospital kind of thing. They haven't been checked out yet. Get your way there so that you can see this, this king that was born. And then for the, for the Magi, they saw it, and we don't know if it appeared on the very night, but they saw the, the star appear, and they came and they, to worship Jesus, and it took them time to get there. And so uh, that's just some Bible trivia for you as you consider this narrative. So it's in Matthew chapter 2, and we're actually going to read all of chapter 2, uh, but it's not a long one, so don't worry. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is God's word to us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much the season to celebrate you. The fresh reminder of the joy, hope, and peace that you have for us, not just in December, but throughout every, throughout every part of the year. According to your goodness, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So uh, just a couple of things, uh, some observations about this. And then uh, I really just want to make some observations that hopefully come as an encouragement to us and, and, and maybe even challenge us a little bit about who Jesus is and what his desire is for us and what his hope is for his church. Uh, the first thing is that King Herod was, an, uh, was a wicked man. He was He was evil. And he killed his own family members. He fought for his own power. He fought for his own glory. He fought for his own place. And he did everything he could to preserve his place and to protect his place on the throne. And so these places where he's asking these questions aren't, aren't as straightforward as they would seem. It seems that the Magi come and say, hey, this king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's like, cool, tell me where it is. I want to I meet him. It was like, hey, tell me where this guy is so I can kill this child before it can take my throne, before he threatens me and before he challenges me. One of the most terrifying things to anyone in authority is someone in a higher authority if you don't know that they have your highest good in mind. I can hardly blame a secular nation for having problems with God because a secular nation wants to have complete control, but if there's God they don't have it. Not only do they not have it, but everybody, this God could lead other people out of and from under their authority, which is a terrifying idea for anybody who wants complete control, isn't it? And so we've got Herod and he's like, just let me know where he is. I want to worship this guy with a rock. Herod summoned the wise men and learned everything that he could. When did it come up? And so you'll notice the wise, if you keep reading the narrative, the wise men actually, after worshiping Jesus, an angel tells them, don't go back this way, go the other way. And they don't go back to Herod and they don't tell Herod where it was. But Herod had just enough information to know when the star appeared so he could kind of approximate when the child was born. So then he called an edict to kill all the sons that were born in this time to, a, to, to, make, it possible, to make it impossible for this king of the Jews who was born to threaten his reign at any point. This is how wicked this Herod is. And so he, 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 this is what Herod ends up doing. But Jesus and his family, they would become refugees in Egypt and Jesus would grow up strong and then they would come back and he would continue to grow and he would grow into the teacher, prophet, uh, priest, rabbi. He would grow into everything that, uh, that uh, Herod feel, feared he would become and more. Because the rulership that Jesus would have wasn't just going to be a temporary earthly kingship. He wasn't interested in taking Herod's place. That was far too low for him. The throne of man is a footstool to God. And so Jesus was not after that throne. He was after a a whole another throne where he would rule and reign forever up to and including now and forevermore. And so we have, we have this happening, Herod working out his manipulations and everything else. Just a note that you'll, you'll notice that it doesn't say that there were three magi. It doesn't say that there were three kings. We actually don't know how many there were. We know that they brought three kinds of gifts, but it, three makes for a really good song. You know, you got hickory dickory dock, you got three blind mice. So why not three, blind, why not three wise men? You know, great things come in threes. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you know, it's, it, we, we like things in threes. The trifectas, right? You know, it's, it feels good. And so we, let's just put a little bow on it. There could have been six. Let that bother you. You know, or five, you know, which is a number of grace. And if you're into those 
kinds of things. So what's a real bothersome number? 13? Yeah, 13 wise men. Take that. <coughs> Nativity sets everywhere. <laughs> now, Hallmark would get really mad if we changed the number. One of the things that stands out to me a lot, especially after last night's message about the shepherds, is that in this, in the the story, I, I don't like the word story, but I'll use it. Story is oftentimes something that's made up. It's really an account. It's something that happened. These are real people with real events, with real revelation, with a real message for a real us. And um, one of the things that stands out to me is last night we were talking about shepherds, these outcasts from society. There were these writings, there were these Jewish writings that said, don't even train your child. Don't make room for them to become shepherds because they will never have a chance to be ceremonially clean because they'll have to stay out in the fields. They won't be able to worship. They won't be able to come in when they're supposed to come in. The shepherds, this is really fascinating, but the shepherds who were watching the flocks that we talked about last night, the flocks that they were watching were probably the flocks that were sacrificed to temporarily cover the sins of the people on the, on the, on the, on the, on the basis of sacrifice. It's called atonement. And so they covered the temple flock that would be sacrificed for people's sins, but they themselves weren't clean. But it's pretty cool that when the angels appeared, the angels appeared to, to tell the people who were most familiar with the cycle of raising something up and killing it and raising something up and having it killed and raising something up and being killed. People that were so familiar with the temporary covering and the, te- in the, in the, in the temporary kind of effect of temporary coverings. He came and said, basically, there's a permanent covering here. So it's cool that the shepherds are the one that the angels went to to reveal this to. It's cool that God was like, hey, these guys are going to be real familiar with all of this. Let's go to them first. But they were also people who didn't have a lot of possession. And they were poor. And then in the same narrative, or in the same history, we have, we have shepherds and people who are unclean. Then we have, we have the people in the temple who dedicated Jesus, who were the most devoted and the most clean and the most pious and the most righteous and with close relationship with Jesus, they were in the temple all the time praying. They were at church every single day, worshiping God and praying and serving communion and cleaning things up and making coffee and doing all the things that had to happen to make sure that other people could do these things. So we have them. And then, and then today we're, we're learning about these people who were pagans and they were worshiping the stars and they were looking just to worship any God that they could. And they're like, hey, the stars say that there's a God born Let's, or a king born. Let's go worship him. And so now we have these wealthy pagans. How's that for a church service? I wish they were all there at the same time. (laughs) But they found themselves unified at the feet of Jesus, worshiping the King of Kings. The one who would save the world from its sins. We have shepherds who were unclean. We have the most pious of pious people. And we have pagan, wealthy kings. Pagan is, we we use it loosely as people who don't worship God, but people who worship idols, people who worship the earth, people who worship the stars, people who worship pretty much anything that's not the living God. There are 
Um, there are more distinctives than that. I'm, I'm using a loose caricature, uh, a loose descriptor, but it fits. There were, these, there were these prophecies made that the stars would align a certain way, and when they aligned this certain way, there was going to be a king born. And certain people looked for it, and certain people didn't look for it. You know, sometimes I wonder how much of what God is up to that I miss because I wasn't looking for it. Here this drama was unfolding in the sky where these stars were aligning and all these things were happening. And the only people who saw it were the people who were looking for it. How much does God want to do in your life right now? In your relationships, in your job, in your finances, in your own soul? What longing does he want to fulfill? What, what hurt does he want to bring, come to as a balm and bring healing? What stress does he want to bring comfort to? But we are looking in the wrong places. We look at ESPN for comfort or at least to check out and forget. Watch a Lifetime movie to stir our affections and our emotions because we just, if, if we can't feel significant, we can enjoy somebody else's significance. Maybe, maybe we're going to go to the gym and if we get in good enough shape, then somehow we'll, we'll satisfy whatever, whatever it is that, uh, whatever this image is that we think will give us standing with people. When your standing with God is so significant, he gave his son for you. There's a, speaking of gyms, I don't want to tell on, the, on any of the gyms. It's a great slogan, but it's like change your body, change your life. I know that, so so I've lost like 60 pounds at this point. And uh, no, you can, okay, thank, thanks. My kids had an intervention for me. And they were like, Dad, you're, you're getting, oh, we can't say it. It's rude. It's rude. We're not allowed to say that. Because we taught our kids not to say that people are fat because we didn't want that coming out in the grocery line at the store, right? Which is where it would always happen. If, if it were to happen, it's going to happen in plain hearing of the person that they're talking about. And so we taught them, at least until you can understand, just don't say that, like treat it like a bad word. Fat was like the F word in our house. We'd say, oh, it's the F word. And I'm like, oh, no, don't say that. But they were like, it's fat. So they had this intervention for me, and that's part of why I started losing weight. Um, (laughs) My kids were concerned for their daddy. Um, What are we talking about? Change your body. Oh, so, so you start working out and you, and you lose the first five or 10 pounds. And then I realized I'm just a, a skinnier version of the same angry person that I was before I lost the five or 10 pounds, right? And now I just had less time on my calendar to relax and rest and do the things I really wanted to do. So now I'm stressed out, angry and five pounds lighter. So changing my body did not change my life. It gave me an opportunity. It showed me more of what was in me so that I could ask the Holy Spirit to come and change my life. Right, so as I, 
as I lost weight and stuff like that. You know, it, you could just be a skinnier version of the same you, but that doesn't sell memberships. <laughs> Lose weight, but you'll still be jerk. <laughs> So, yeah, that doesn't sell. But I don't even know why I was talking about that. Just so you know, if you set a New Year's resolution, um, losing weight, yeah, good one. Um, but, but don't look to that to change much more than what the scale says and which clothes you have to buy, which won't change all that much. But these, um, these astronomers were looking at the stars and, and they, were, they were looking and they... And they saw something everybody else missed. God was about, he was about the business that he said he would be about. And he was bringing his Messiah. He was bringing the king. And these guys were the only ones watching the sky. And, and so um, I just want to read about this star because I find it quite interesting. It turns out it might not be a star. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a star. Uh, I do know one thing that that. All the astronomers and scientists and stuff, all we can do right now is guess, but we have this account that's verified by all these different people and understood to be credible and, and led them to the right person. And, you know, so like there's this historical Jesus who was born to poor parents and then they had resources to, to be a, all of a sudden this king that was born into a barn and set in a manger had resources to flee to Egypt and they were taken care of and they were, they had everything that they needed. So, you know, you kind of, you kind of put all these pieces together and you're like, my goodness, this really happened. So how could we possibly even consider the fact that there was no thing happening in the sky? That's off the table. The only thing that's on the table is what is that thing? And they chose to use the word star. Um, But it says that um, after studying this guy, um, he's uh, a Notre Dame professor of theoretical astrophysics and cosmology. Cosmology in the Department of Physics at the University of Notre Dame's College of Science has been studying the star of Bethlehem for over a decade. This came out at the beginning of December. Um, Astronomers and historians and theologians have pondered the question of the Christmas star for many years, said Matthews in a press release. When did, where and when did it appear? What did it look like? Of the billions of stars out there, which among them shone so bright on that day so long ago? After studying historical astronomers, astronomical and biblical records, Matthews believed that the event that led the Magi to Bethlehem was a rare planetary alignment that occurred in 6 BC during the alignment of the sun, Jupiter, and the moon, and Saturn were all in Aries, according to Matthews. Aries being a, a constellation. According to Matthews, while Venus was next door in Pisces and Mercury and Mars were on the other side in Taurus. At the time, Aries was also the location of the vernal equinox. Matt, this means a whole lot of nothing to me, really, without reading extra things. So if you like stars, awesome. And you're like, hey, this makes sense to me. But basically what's happening is there are these constellations that had meanings to people. And all of these planets are lining up inside of the constellations, which symbolize the things that they were looking for. That's what it means, right? So you don't even have to understand what's really happening. But they were looking for something to happen, and it was happening in the sky. I'm <laughs> like, in the sky. <laughs> like, where else would the... <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Stars up in the sky. In space. Matthew, 
Matthew's research indicates that the presence of Jupiter and the moon signified the birth of a ruler with a special destiny. So that's what they were looking for. Saturn was a symbol of the uh, the giving of life, which was the presence of Aries in the vernal equinox, also marking the start of spring. The professor said that the alignment in Aries signified newborn ruler in Judea to the Magi. Right, So each thing had a significant meaning and they saw these things line up and they're like, a king's been born. Let's go check this out. It's pretty awesome that the stars would testify of God. Not just in the generic, uh, what, revelation, uh, what the book of Romans calls general revelation, that when we look and we see nature and we see the sky and we see a sunset, that we should have this sense of awe that tells us there's something bigger than what's happening right now, that, that our conscience, that our heart, that our testimony, that, that our spirit knows that there's eternity. In Ecclesiastes, it says that eternity was given in the hearts of man. And so we long for something greater that the kind of a general revelation and knowledge that God exists. Not only does it generally God exists, but it lined up to testify that this had just happened. It's pretty cool. I'm just excited. I'm geeking out. I read more about stars this week than I can remember. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant. This guy, Matthews, this, this uh, professor says that it will be 16,000 years before similar alignment is seen again. According to his calculations, but even then the vernal equinox will not be in Aries. So it don't, won't even be a complete representation of it. Matthews couldn't find an alignment like the one known as the Bethlehem star going out more than 500,000 years. Amen. That is awesome. That is so cool. And I need my notes back. Guys, I'm just, I know that, I know that the, the Bible can seem fantasy. It can seem fantasful. Is that a word? Fantasticful? Fantasy-like. We'll use that. This is why we avoided the Facebook live stuff. We didn't want to put videos up for so long because it's easier to edit audio than video. And this is live, so there's no getting around it. It seems like fantasy, doesn't it? A flood. God created things with his words. He formed Adam with his hands and breathed into him. You know, and then you get, then you got this ark with all these animals and then the repopulation of the world. And then you've got plant, you got, you got a continents and you've got uh, distinctions and species and you've got all these, all these amazing things. And you're like, this is a fantasy. What in the world? But I'll tell you what, if every, they just, what happens is science can do its best to guess at some stuff based on what we have available to us right now. But as more stuff gets available, they're constantly rewriting what, had already, what they already said had happened definitively. So there was this thing in, in the Bible, it talks about waters above and waters below. And everybody's like, there's no waters below, there's only land. Well, like in this calendar year, they found waters below. And so I'm just, I'm just saying, before you throw this out and you're like, oh, it's just fantasy. Fantasyful. What's the word? Fantastical. No, I wouldn't say that word. I hope that's not the word. Internet, I apologize. I know it seems to be something other than what it really is, but what it is is really what it is. And it does take faith to say, I'm going to believe what this narrative says, even though the information that I have right now doesn't quite line up with it. 
But that is the life of faith. God, I'm going to choose to believe that if I humble myself and love my wife, then my marriage will be restored. Even though it doesn't look like that right now. God, I'm going to believe that if I forgive this person, even though it feels so right to hold a grudge against them, even though your word says that I need to forgive, I'm going to choose to forgive, even though it feels like it's going to break me to do so. I'm going to go with what the Bible says. My reason for going with what the Bible says is because of the accounts of Jesus. Because he said that he was going to die and rise from the dead, and he did it. And that was the greatest promise ever made. But the promises go way back to the very beginning. God said, I'm going to send a Savior, and he's going to come this way. So he's been nothing but faithful all throughout what we call the meta-narrative of Scripture, the story that lines its way, weaves its way all throughout the Bible. That's why we try and read our Bibles every day. And if you're just getting started reading your Bible, I encourage you to try five minutes for five days this week and see if God doesn't meet you. So they had this journey. I'm getting ready to land. They saw all of this take place in the stars and they went in pursuit of this king who was born. Fanciful is a word. Thank you. It seemed fanciful. (laughs) So they journeyed and they saw all this happen and they journeyed to go see this king who was born. They weren't dissuaded that the star didn't represent a king from their own people and their own worship because they just wanted the truth. They just wanted a king. The stars say there's going to be a king. Let's go worship this king. Even if he doesn't come the way that we would want him to come, where we would want him to come, even if he's not our king. If Jesus hasn't appeared to you the way that you would want him to appear to you, I appeal to you that he's still the king. If he hasn't appeared to you the way that you desired for God to appear to you, I appeal to you that he's still God. So they made this journey and they didn't quit until they found him. And when they got there, these wise, rich rulers fell down and worshiped a baby. They got down as low as low can go to present this child with gifts of great value. You know, you can give a gift of great value with not ever bowing down. You can give somebody a huge gift and have nothing in your heart tied to that gift. The same way you can say sorry without being sorry. You know, if if I gave... A remarkable remarkable gift to my wife, but my heart was far from her. She'd be very dissatisfied with the gift, no matter its value. She'd probably still want the gift. (laughs) But there'd be an emptiness without my heart. The bowing down of these wise men, the bowing down of these magi or kings or rulers, whatever you want to call them, 
represented a humbleness in their heart towards this king. And it was just a baby. Are we willing to not just give our time, not just give our treasure, not just give our talents, but to give our hearts? Because the giving of any of those other things without our hearts is empty and falls short of what he wants from us because it falls short of what he wants for us. They fell and worshiped and they gave him valuable things, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those are really cool things. And I encourage you, look them up, Google them this week, Google them this afternoon, talk about them, it's neat. We think of gold as being the valuable thing, but it's really the frankincense and myrrh that were the valuable gifts to them. You know, we're like, they gave gold. You know, it's like, yeah, that was not as special as the other things. The other things held much greater value. We can learn a lot from these pagan kings. The way that they watched for God to do what he said he would do. The way that they waited. The way that they had to mine out the information to find out what they were even looking for in the first place. You know, it's not, God's not going to tell, like you're not going to know right off the top of your head what you're supposed to look for. It's something that you need to mine out and you need to seek out. You need to ask questions. You need, the answers are going to be found in your Bible. The answers are going to be found in conversation with other believers. What should I be looking for? What should I be expecting? What's a realistic expectation for my marriage? What's a realistic expectation for my finances? What can I really expect for God to do in these relationships? Are questions that we shouldn't find the answer to of online. They're not questions that we should find the answer to in movies, on entertainment television. They're answers that God wants to give us from his Holy Spirit through his word and through his people. So they sought him out the way that they didn't quit until they got there. They wanted truth and they weren't going to stop until they saw him. And the way they worshiped, they humbled themselves and gave gifts of great value. Father, we love you. We thank you for this account of these magi who incidentally, though they didn't know it, were giving us a model for worshiping you well. 